So this week was one of those weeks where everything I planned did not really go according to plan. You ever have those weeks uh, where you plan out how you think things are going to go and, and really nothing goes according to your plan? Thursday is just one example of how this week was like for me. Uh, on Thursday morning, let me tell you a story. I woke up as I normally do, and the first thing I do in the morning, I go to the kitchen and I get a cup of coffee. Um, I sit down and I read my Bible, and that's how the morning began, just like any other day. And also on that day, at some point, my son Judah entered into the living room. This is a pretty normal day, a pretty normal routine. Uh, but then everything changed. And on Thursday, as I'm on the couch there, drinking my coffee, reading my Bible with my son Judah next to me, from outside in the backyard, we heard a really loud pop. And then the electricity went out. <clears throat> and so suddenly Jude and I are there, we're sitting on the couch, there's no power, there's no electricity. Um, we found out later that one of our local squirrels decided he wanted to figure out what 14,000 volts tasted like. And um, he wasn't available for comment afterward. <clears throat> but that's kind of how my day started out. It just kind of jostled my routine and threw me off. And then just a little bit later, um, when our other kids started waking up, we found out that our daughter Abigail had a pretty bad cough. And so um, my wife and I, we decided to take Abigail into the doctor. Now, at the same time Abigail was supposed to go to the doctor, our son Judah also had an appointment. And my wife has not figured out how to be in two places at once. And so we had to split up and I took Abigail to the doctor while Hannah took Judah to his appointment. And uh, everything was fine. The good news of the story is Abigail was fine. It was just teething. The power came back on. But in that whole process, I'll admit, I got quite frustrated. It wasn't until noon that I was even able to get into work that day. And so, elders, you can dock my pay accordingly. Um, but my entire day was thrown off, and I was frustrated. And if you're like me, in those moments of frustration, you might do like I was tempted to do and blame. Several times in the morning, I felt that desire inside of me to blame. I wanted to blame Judah for waking up early and interrupting my time in the morning. I blamed the squirrel for biting the power line as he killed himself. And I even wanted to blame my wife. I don't know why she didn't do anything, but that's what husbands do, right? This is Father's Day. We tend to blame our wives for things, even though they didn't do anything wrong. But I wanted to play that blame game. I wanted to blame somebody for why my day was not going according to plan. And it made me step back and ask the simple question, from where did that desire to blame come? Why is it that I, that you, that all of us, we have that desire inside of us to blame someone, to blame something for the problems in our life? Inherent within all, within all of us is that desire to blame. 
And in everything we do, there's this blame, there's this fracturing of relationships, there's a disruption and a dysfunction to our world. Why? To answer that question, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 3, and as you're opening up to Genesis chapter 3, I want to remind you of what it is we're doing here this morning. Uh, This year, we're going over the vision and the mission of Grace Bible Church and the vision that we have for you, that every person in this room, ultimately the vision we have for you is that when you stand before the Lord Jesus, you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And our mission to help you prepare for that day is summarized in the words, equip, engage, exalt. It's Our job as pastors and elders to equip you with the truth so that you go out midweek and engage people with the gospel and then we come back together every weekend as the body of Christ and exalt him for who he is and what he's been doing. And right now we're in a sermon series of equip and we're taking a close look at our doctrinal statement and what it is that we believe here at Grace Bible Church. Week one, a few weeks ago, we asked the question, what is truth? And we looked at what we believe here at Grace about the Bible. Last week, we asked the question, who is God? And we looked at the Trinity that we see throughout Scripture. And this week, we're going to ask the question, what is sin? What is sin? There on your outline, you can see three things that we're going to do together today that we're going to do every week. We're going to look at a text. We're going to look at the theology, what we believe. And then we'll talk about the takeaway, the so what, what difference does it make. So hopefully by this time you found Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at number one on your outline. Let's take a look first at the text. And I'm actually going to cheat a little bit and read for you first Chapter 2, verse 25. So we're actually going to begin there at the very end of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 says this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Let's pause right here. Here we're introduced to really the main characters of this particular story. We see Adam and Eve, we see the man and the woman, and then we're introduced to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent in Revelation is also identified as Satan. But I want you to notice how Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, are described there in verse 25. Verse 25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. Now the Hebrew word for naked is arumim, and the only reason I'm telling you this is not to impress you with probably my poor Hebrew pronunciation, but because there's a word play that's about to take place. Chapter, four, or chapter two, verse 25, the man and his wife were arumim, and the serpent, chapter three, verse one, is arum. Arumim, and a room. There's a word play, in other words, going on here in the passage that's very important for you to understand. See, the man and his woman, they were naked. They were vulnerable. They were trusting. 
And the serpent, on the other hand, is crafty. Adam and Eve were a rumim, and the serpent is a room. And there's a wordplay going on here in the passage. The word for crafty, by the way, uh, don't immediately think bad thoughts about that word crafty. In fact, when you look at the use of this word in other places in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, we see that this craftiness, this idea of a room, is actually a good thing. That the naive, the simple-minded in the book of Proverbs need a craftiness to them. And the wordplay going on here in the passage is that Adam and Eve are naked, they're arumim, they're vulnerable, they're simple. All they know is to trust. And the serpent, who's crafty, rather than coming alongside Adam and Eve in their naked vulnerability and teaching them, instructing them in how to be wise and live for God, instead the serpent is going to capitalize on that vulnerability, exploit that vulnerability, and in his craftiness, he's going to lead Adam and Eve to disobey. So immediately here, there's a question, a tension in the text between man and woman who all they know is to trust. And on the other hand, the craftiness of the deceiver. I want you to notice as we continue in verse 1 exactly how it is that the serpent deceives and corrupts and exploits that naked vulnerability of Adam and Eve. Notice chapter 3, verse 1, continuing, he said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, indeed, Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Again, think about this. Often when we read Genesis chapter 3, we're so familiar with the story, we just pass it by. But at this point, everything Adam and Eve know, all that they know is good. They know the good world that God has created. All they know to do is to trust. They have no reason to doubt. And here comes the crafty, deceptive servant, uh, serpent. And notice embedded in the very way that he phrases his question is the assumption that Eve can judge for herself what God has said. That Eve can call into question the reliability of what God has declared to be true. Notice again the question, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The serpent raises doubts about the word of God and about the goodness of God. Well, notice in response, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from any fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said back to the woman, you surely will not die. Notice this, verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, at this point, all Adam and Eve know is to trust. The question now becomes, will they trust the word of God 
or will they trust the word of the serpent? Notice the serpent lays out the idea here that God is withholding something from Eve. That although God has created the world to be good, something better exists. And I want you to zero in on verse 5. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You could paraphrase this by saying, you will be like God, deciding for yourself what is good and what is evil. You will be like God, deciding for yourself what is good and what is evil. Don't let God decide for you what is good and what is evil. You can be like God, deciding for yourself what is good and what is evil. Warren Wearsby writes this. He says, what is the lie that has ruled civilization since the fall of man? It's the belief that men and women can be their own God and not suffer any consequences. This is it right here. The original temptation, one we see played out again and again and again today, is that there is no truth. What God has said is irrelevant, and you can decide for yourself how you want to live. Don't let God be the standard. You are the standard. Well, let's see how the story plays out. Notice verses 6 through 8. We come to the disobedience here. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, notice she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Real quick, notice the rapid succession of the action here in verse 6. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave to her husband, and he ate. And just like that, Everything's changed. Notice verse 7. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, notice, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The sad reality and consequences of sin we see right here. The great commentator Kent Hughes said, Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. Next we see, notice God approaching now Adam and Eve after they're hiding from his presence. Verse 9 says, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice the immediate impact, the break in relationship between Adam and Eve and their creator. Suddenly they find themselves hiding from the very presence of God because sin's Proper fruit is shame. They're shameful. They're hiding. And next, they begin to blame. 
Again, the ultimate consequences of sin we see here in this passage are this shame and blame game that we all play. Shame and blame. Notice, for example, verse 12, the man said to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Notice Adam, as a loving husband, does what we all do. We blame our wife, right? Like I was tempted to do earlier in the week, my wife hadn't done anything wrong, but I felt this desire within me to want to blame her for something. But more importantly, what I want you to notice is not only does Adam blame the woman, but he indirectly blames God. He says to God, the woman you gave me, you gave me this problem, God, it's your fault and her fault. And then notice E, verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Eve blames the serpent, and she's right in that, really. He did deceive her, and she at least acknowledges the fact that she ate. But God has to deal with this. There has to be consequences So starting in verse 14, we see that each guilty party, Adam, Eve, and the serpent, they all receive punishment for their sin. And in each person, in each guilty party, the punishment comes really in two forms. Something happens to them, and something happens within them. In other words, something happens physically, and something happens relationally. For example, notice verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Physically, the serpent is disciplined. And notice that the serpent goes from the most crafty beast that the Lord God has made to now the most cursed of all the creation. He goes from the most crafty to the most cursed. This is the physical change that takes place, but then there's a relational conflict as well. Notice verse 15. God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity or conflict, strife, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So now relationally, for the serpent, there's conflict. Conflict between the seed, the offspring of Eve, and that of the serpent. Many theologians refer to this as the first gospel, the first glimmer of hope that we see here now in the problem of sin, ultimately fulfilled when Jesus, the ultimate son of Adam, will crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself. Next, God gives the punishment on the woman. Notice verse 16, to the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Again, notice there's a physical punishment and there's a relational punishment. Physically now, woman's pain in childbirth is gonna be multiplied. 
The word for childbirth here is really conception, and I believe that this uh, begins really from the moment of conception all the way through the process of child-rearing. That now the entire child-rearing process is going to get harder and harder. It's going to get physically painful, yes, but then also as women bring forth fellow sinners, as we see the sins multiplied through future generations, it gets more and more painful. And I know many women in this room, you've suffered through that reality of seeing your children uh, turn to sin. Eve herself, she will see it in just a few chapters. Relationally, though, Eve also is given punishment. Notice the last part there in verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. He will rule over you. Now there's relational conflict that takes place between Adam and Eve. I do believe that Adam was created to lovingly lead his wife, but now there's this conflict that takes place. That Eve is going to want to rule over her husband and there's going to be this battle between husband and wife that takes place. Finally, in verses 17 through 19, we come to God's discipline of Adam. Notice, then God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice physically Adam's work is now impacted negatively because of sin. He was put there to cultivate the land, but now the land is going to bring forth for him thorns and thistles. By the sweat of his brow, by hard work, he'll toil the land. Things just got a lot more difficult for Adam. And then notice relationally there at the end, things change as well. Relationally now, what enters into the picture is death. Adam was taken from the dust, from the dirt, and now he's going to die. There's a physical separation that's going to take place. And Adam is ultimately going to return to the ground from which he was taken, from the ground from which he was made. This is a depressing message. Perhaps not the one you woke up excited to come to church to hear, right? The good thing is there is some hope. There is some hope at the end of the chapter. I want to highlight the hope starting in verse 20. Notice verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now Eve is given a name, and her name is related to the fact that she's the mother of all the living. There's embedded it here, the idea, the trust, that the human race is not going to end. It's going to be hard. Things are going to be different. But Eve is the mother of all the living. Second, verse 21, we see God himself intervene. Verse 21 says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Here a sacrifice is made. This is a picture of atonement that God is intervening now to take care of this problem of sin. And the third thing we see is in verses 22 through 24. 
It says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. At the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The act of mercy we see here in these verses is that God removes Adam and Eve from the garden. He removes them from the presence of the tree of life so they don't take from it and eat and live forever in this fallen condition. There, are ho- there is hope here in these verses that this story is not going to end in this way. And that's the good news. But Genesis chapter 3, as we take a step back and kind of summarize it for just a minute, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the origin of and the effect of sin in our world. This explains why our world is the way it is, why we are the way we are. Why is it? Earlier this week, I wanted to blame. Because of sin. Because of the sin that's in me because of the sin that's in you. Sin is the reason why things are wrong in our world. Sin is the reason why things are wrong within us. Sin is the reason why ultimately our relationship with God is broken. But the question I want us to ask now as we take a look at number two on your outline is what is sin? What is sin exactly? On the back side of your outline, I've given you what our doctrinal statement says under number one on your outline under equip, what our doctrinal statement says about what we believe here at Grace Bible Church about the total depravity of man. Let me read this for you. It says, we believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God, but that in Adam's sin, the race fell inherited a sinful nature, became alienated from God, and is totally unable to regain its former position. Let's break down this statement kind of phrase by phrase. The first thing I want you to notice is it begins on a real positive note. It says, we believe man was created in the image and likeness of God. This is a great thing. And before we go any further in this depressing message, this is what I want you to see in here. That you are created in the image and likeness of God. That means that you're created with dignity and you're to be treated with dignity. What this phrase means is that every person who has ever lived, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, they're created in the image of God and therefore is to be treated with dignity. I think this is a message that our world desperately needs to hear. I've told you in this sermon series a number of times that as we move through our doctrinal statement, I'm going to make a few suggestions to you about how we need to update our statement of faith. And by the way, I want to explain just kind of as a side note that there is a process for this. I don't have the unilateral authority just to change our statement of faith. And so I'm just making some proposals to you. I'm doing this in conversation with our elder board and with some of you in this room. At some point, we will present 
um, some of these suggested updates, and we'll talk about it and vote on it and all of that. But um, at this point, uh, one of my proposals is I actually think we need to split this statement into two. I think we need to have a specific statement on anthropology. What is a human being? What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God, and why ultimately does that matter? And then we need to have a separate statement on the sinfulness of humanity. So I think we need to have both. We need to understand both that we're created with dignity because we're created in the likeness of God and we need to treat one another in such a way. But at the same time, we need to be reminded of the sad reality of our sinfulness as well. Now, this particular statement really focuses in on sin. But what is sin? Our statement itself is entitled The Total Depravity of Man. The Total Depravity of Man. Total depravity simply means that everything we are and everything we do is affected by sin. Everything we are and everything we do is affected by sin. But what is sin? Another proposal that I have regarding our doctrinal statement is I think we need to add some clarity about what sin really is. In 1954, when our doctrinal statement was written, you could probably safely assume that most people had a basic understanding of sin. But I don't think we can make that assumption anymore. So I'd like to add some sort of statement about what sin really is. Throughout the Bible, we see different pictures of what sin is. It's falling short of the glory of God. It's wickedness. It's wandering. It's going astray. It's lawlessness. But most importantly, what sin is, it's a relational problem. The reason sin is so serious is because it's an affront to the God who created us. It's a severing and a breaking of a relationship between us and our Creator. And now everything we are and everything we do is impacted by that sin, by that broken relationship. That's what our statement means by total depravity. Let's break this down a little bit more. There's a few phrases there I want you to see. Um, first, the two phrases, in Adam's sin, the race fell and inherited a sinful nature. These are both very important phrases. In, in Adam's sin, the human race fell and inherited a sinful nature. The reality is, is when we read that story in Genesis chapter 3, it wasn't just Adam and Eve who sinned, we all did. In Romans chapter 5, we learn this theological truth that through Adam, sin entered into the whole world, that none of us is exempt, that each and every one of us is born with what theologians call inherited sin. We have a sin nature that there's this propensity within every single one of us to choose self over God, to choose self over others. We're selfish by nature. We have a sin nature. There's a great book on sin. 
If you're looking for one book to read on sin, it's this one. It's by a guy named Cornelius Plantinga. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That's a great description of sin in and of itself. Not the way it's supposed to be. But in it, he says this. He says, sin qualifies as the worst of our troubles because it corrupts what is human about us. He says, sometimes as sinners, we draw pleasure from mere rebellion. We take satisfaction in showing who is boss for showing that no one else can legislate for me. And then he says this, the heart wants what it wants, and the heart has its reasons that reason does not know. That's a perfect description of this sinful nature, this sin that we inherited. Those times when we do things and we don't even know why. The heart has its reasons that reason itself does not know. That our heart itself is deceitful and wicked. It cannot be trusted. We cannot be the ones to decide the difference between good and evil. Because we're corrupted. We're sinful. The next phrase I want you to see here in our doctrinal statement is that phrase, This is the most important one. We became alienated from God. We became alienated from God. Again, sin at the end of the day is relational. And relationally, we became alienated from our creator. We became alienated from the one who made us. We became alienated from a holy God. And we see the impact of this broken relationship all around us. At the end of the day, sin is not only breaking of God's law, but sin is our breaking of our relationship with the one who created us. The next phrase I want you to see, the last phrase there, because of our sin, we are totally unable to regain our former position. Totally unable to regain our former position. Ephesians 2 says that we're all born dead in our transgressions and sins. We're all born spiritually dead, unable to do anything about this sinful, fallen state which we're in. Again, this is a depressing message. Uh, Not necessarily the most uplifting sermon you've ever heard. And so let me give you just one joke. Mark Twain once said that man is the only creature in all of creation that can blush, and he's the only creature that needs to. (laughs) We're the only creature in all of creation that can blush, and we're the only creature that needs to. And that then brings us to number three on your outline. What difference does this make? What difference does this make? As we think about sin, as we think about Genesis 3, why should we care? What difference does it make? A couple things, three things for you in terms of application. Number one is I do think we need to come to a deeper understanding of just what sin is and just how deeply sin impacts us every day. Now, Currently, and I I confess that I'm as guilty about this as anybody else, sometimes we treat sin as though it's just kind of a joke. 
We do live in a culture, a world where what God has called sin is not only accepted and tolerated, but even celebrated. We often treat sin, sometimes I treat sin in my life and in my kids' life as though it's something to joke about. And while I'm certainly not saying that we can't have a sense of humor, we can. God created us with a sense of humor. We need to do those little checkpoints in our life over what we find to be funny. Uh, Sin is not funny. It's deeply serious because it ultimately impacts our relationship with the holy God. The second major application I want you to see here, the second thing I want you to understand is I want you to see just how deceptive sin is. Just how deceptive sin is because just how deceptive our enemy is. One of the things we see in Genesis 3 is that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Another recommendation that I have for our doctrinal statement is for us to add a statement of what we believe about the spiritual realm because everything we see is not everything that there is. Everything that we see is not all that there is. The reality is we are engaged in a very serious spiritual battle. And that just like in Genesis chapter three, Satan is alive and well today, trying to deceive us into believing that there is no truth, that there's no such thing as sin, that we can believe and live however we want to believe and live. If you take a look in Genesis chapter three and compare it today, you will see that Satan's tactics have not changed. He continues to deny God's word, He continues to capitalize on our vulnerability and trust, and he continues to promise something better than what God has promised if we just believe him. And that's then related to your one thing for this week. Your one thing for this week, if you have time for nothing else, as a result of this passage, as a response to this passage, the one thing I'd ask for you is to think back through Genesis chapter three, verse five, that lie You can be like God, deciding for yourself the difference between good and evil. And I'd like you to wrestle with the question, where do you see the serpent's deception in your life today? Happy Father's Day. (laughs) This is the worst Father's Day sermon you've ever heard. And so let me leave with a little bit of hope. The third application and the most important application. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7, he says, What a wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? I do hope you're a little depressed this morning. As you're reminded painfully from the Word of God that you are a wretched person, I am a wretched person. We all, like sheep, have turned astray. There's not a single righteous person in this room. But the most important application we see here in Genesis 3 is that something can be done. Something has been done from our problem of sin. The good news is that God sent his son. That Jesus on the cross took upon himself the penalty that you and I deserve. 
The Bible tells us that the price of sin is eternally significant, that the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that the price of forgiveness is free to you because it costs Jesus everything. And here this morning, whether in person or watching online, if you've not really considered the forgiveness, the reconciliation, the love, the grace, and the mercy of our Savior, I want to invite you to trust in Him, to believe that in His love and in His mercy, He takes your sin as far away as the east is from the west, that He declares you to be righteous in His sight, not because of anything you've done, but only because of his son. And that's why in the next verse in Romans chapter seven, after Paul says, what a wretched person I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. As we recognize just how truly sinful we are, that each and every one of us has this inherited sin, that each and every one of this continually chooses to go our own way, as each and every one of us every day is reminded of the sinfulness within us, of the sinfulness around us. God, as we are reminded of these painful truths, I pray that as we end this service, as we sing your praises, that you would remind us of what you have done that you have taken us from the grave to the garden, that you have made something new, that you have declared us to be sons and daughters in your sight. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the mercy that you've given us in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray this in his name. Amen.